For many, January is a time of new resolutions and beginnings. Rather like that first stomp through newly fallen snow, our footprints are fresh. We're carving out a new niche, but treading the same well-worn path. But as much as we're primed to lean in, step up and achieve our goals, this month is also a time when the mountains beckon. From the Alps to the highlands to the wilds of Iceland. And after the rigours of Christmas, we crave the purity of the peaks and a snowy, sublime escape. This episode of Confect Corner celebrates high-altitude pursuits and unpacks the design, social history and continuous draw of cold winter holidays. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, and this is Confect Corner. I have a one suit which is red. When I wear it, I feel freedom, of course, freedom of movement, but I also feel power, you know? I feel like I'm Wonder Woman. The paradox of Charlotte Perriand is that everybody say, and it's true, you are one of the biggest designer of the 20th century. And when you say to Charlotte, you are designer, she said, no, I'm not designer, I'm architect. Welcome to the 11th episode of Confect Corner. I'm Sophie Grove here in London and I'm joined by my co-hosts Gillian DeBias and Marcella Palak in Zurich. Hello both. Well, Gillian, you're here in the studio at I last. know, so nice to see you. <laughs> <laughs> I've missed you while I was away. I know. We had some good remote chat with you actually in Paris and then someone Again. else in Zurich. Um, that was <laughs> yeah. great, but I like having the real you. Exactly. <laughs> Marcella. Yeah. So, hello from foggy, grey, white Zurich. <laughs> oh, well, that sounds Wish very I were romantic. There. <laughs> <laughs> you too, but good to have you down the line again, Marcella. As our long-term listeners will know, we always like to set the tone at the top of the program with something that's caught our attention this month. Gillian. Well, again, I was back in Paris and I was working on a series of films, but I did manage to have an afternoon free and I, I just sort of wandered around the Marais, turning corners at will, and I just discovered in a courtyard my just perfect shop and it's dedicated to pastel colours, pastel paints. It's called um, La Maison du Pastel. It has a 300-year heritage. It's the oldest manufacturer of pastels in the world. And they're all handmade and hand-rolled. And they're packaged in little boxes in, I think, 1,600 different shades of pastels. And the original pastels Degas worked with, Whistler worked with, like it was a favourite of Villard. And I just found this sort of inner peace just looking at these colours and it just gave me inspiration to think, do you know what, I don't paint, I've never painted, but maybe next year is the year I get some paper and just play. doesn't matter if it's good or bad, but just play with colour. So that was very exciting. I was talking to a friend about this. You can become a colourist just from exposing yourself to this nuance of what blue or what red. You know, it doesn't matter if you're not actually an artist, but you're just in that world and then you can bring it into your wardrobe or into your home. And it's just thinking about colour in a different way. If you don't necessarily have inherent artistic sensibilities, you can be really intimidated by painting, which I always was. I don't paint. I just think it's not really about that. It is about the pleasure of the colour, isn't it, surely? And Marcella, you've also been in Paris this month. Yes, well, we stay in Paris. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so last week, um, I've attended the Chanel Metier d'Art show at Le 19 m 
Chanel's new space for arts and crafts in the 19e arrondissement in Paris. The collection by artistic director Virginie Viard for pre-fall next year, that means uh, will be in stores from June, was an amazing celebration of all the ateliers of arts and crafts Chanel is working with and are supporting. I mean, there are embroiderers, pleaters, flower experts, milliners, shoemakers. It's incredible. And with visiting and observing the experts in their light-filled ateliers, I realized how rich and old their savoir-faire is. I've been to Lesage, and it's just... The archive alone is just yes. breathtaking. They did Chaparelli and beautiful Dior. You know, they work across all the couture houses, which is yeah, something interesting, actually, because Chanel have promoted them, but then allowed them to kind of spread their wings as well, which is rather nice. Yeah. I think you were there too, Gillian. I was, uh, that's what I was filming. And it was so hypnotic to watch the rhythm of these expert craftspeople working with their hands. And it's la main, that just kept on being the recurring thing, the importance of la main, working with hands. And the beauty of the intricate work with feathers, with ribbons, the shoemakers, the hat makers, and the absolute passion that these artisans have for their skill and their trade. And the fact that they're not just the older generation. I was so impressed with how many younger people were there learning these skills. So there is a future in it, without doubt. You know, it's one thing talking about craft, but how are these things actually made relevant to a modern audience? Yeah, and actually they, they looked very, very easy, you know. It wasn't like you're expecting, like, uh, couture, but it was very easy worn but looking at it close you saw all these details those crafted details which were amazing but you think those experts are doing just their job on a very very high level but actually they have also to be very very creative means like an artistic uh, director like Virginie Viar, she has a crazy dream and they have to find solutions that make it work, you know. So this was an aspect that I realized by observing them. They are very, very creative, actually. And Sophie, moving on to you, what are you going to share with us today? So I went to the British Museum this weekend and I was in the sort of British ancient Iron Age section looking at jewellery and it was just so beautiful like there were these incredible hordes of gold amazing sculptural torques and bracelets that looked like you could just pluck them from the cabinet and wear them out you know to a party and look exquisite and they're 2,500 years old so I had these moments of complete awe and wonder standing in these dark, beautiful corners of the museum and thinking about these amazing metal detectives, really, who'd found, dug these things up, just, you know, mm -hmm. diligent, very wonderful people throughout the years. I found this one, the Snettersham Great Talk. It's this absolutely magnificent piece of jewellery. I think it was an Iceni royal piece of sort of ritual jewellery. But you just think how wonderful that that type of technology and attention to detail existed all that time ago. But also the idea that there were still these beautiful pieces buried 
out there in the fields that someone's going to find one day is quite magical. So I have a feeling your sort of profession manqué is really an archaeologist. I could see you as an archaeologist. <laughs> Maybe. But, you know, Marcella, we were always, we were talking to Saskia Diaz, the Munich-based jeweller, about this idea of jewellery and our connection with the ancient world. And I think there is a sense, I mean, I'm sure that people, Designers, jewelry designers like Diaz, are trawling these sort of beautiful archives as well. But there is that sense of, you know, timelessness and ritual in jewelry. It's quite magical. Yeah, and actually our body didn't change since the last, I don't know, 5,000 years. So we have two arms, we have fingers, we have a neck. So jewelry can't be like extremely different. But I think there are still always new ideas for like the ear cuffs. You probably also see more and more on the street. So it's not hanging something very heavy on your ear, but you can just uh, put it on your ear like a cuff and then you can wear whatever you want. Beautiful. But let's bring things back to the theme of today's episode, from sledding to salopettes. Today's show has a distinctly alpine feel. To start, we head to the French ski resort of Les Arcs and to have a closer look at the woman behind its iconic modernist buildings, Charlotte Perrien, whose progressive design philosophy changed how we think about resort architecture and accessible leisure. A post-World War II push by the French government to democratise the mountain break for all citizens led to the creation of so-called mega-resorts, but Perrion's Les Arcs remains particularly unique, a forerunner to how we think about sustainability and socially democratic design as it passes 50 years of Les Arcs. We find out that it still has much to teach us today. Joining me to talk about the legacy of Les Arcs and Perrien's designs are Jacques Barsac, documentary filmmaker who co-runs the Perrien archives, and American scholar and editor of Charlotte Perrien, an art of living, Mary McLeod, both of whom knew Perrien personally. Really, I think a lot of our readers will know Charlotte Perrien and, and, and her work. Um, and as one of the leading modernist designers of the 20th century. But for people who don't know her work, could you briefly introduce her as an architect and designer? Essentially, Charlotte spans the 20th century. I would say that she was a leading force, a very strong presence, and much more than just interior design and furniture. And I think Layarc is evidence of that. She started off, as many of you know, attending a woman's decorative art school in the 20s, then got very brave, knocked on Le Corbusier's door, uh, resisted his first turn down. Everybody knows that phrase, we don't embroider cushions, but came back and he saw her amazing installation at the Salon d'Automne, a bar in the attic based on her apartment, and hired her. In 1937, after disputes with Le Corbusier, she leaves the office and begins some practice, including a little chalet interior in the mountains. And I should just say all along, the mountains are a constant theme for Charlotte. She loved to ski. She skied with people at the office like Sakakura. And the mountains, which she knew from growing up as a child, were very important to her. And I would say her aesthetic evolves, but there's something continuous. If it's very sort of committed to the machine age in the 20s, there were always an interest 
in the vernacular texture wood, which comes much more in the 30s. And what I love about Layark is the combination of embracing modern technology with this dimension of human touch, pine furniture, and the use of local craftsmen. Now, Jacques, we know Charlotte Perriam, but this Lezarc project was much later in her career, and she was really directing a large infrastructure project and a big scheme up in the mountains. Can you tell us a little bit about this episode in her career? Well, um, the paradox of Charlotte Perriam is that everybody say, and it's true, you are one of the biggest designers of the 20th century. And when you say to Charlotte, you are designer, she said, no, I'm not designer, I'm architect. And it's a point very important because she don't work like normal designer. José Louis Cert writes something very good about Charlotte Perriand. She said Charlotte Perriand is an urbanist of the house, you know, of the logis. And in fact, she is an urbanist. And when you look, for example, a lot of uh, all the conception of uh, Charlotte, les arcs, or uh, Maison de la Tunisie, or, or other things, it's like a town. It's a little town at the scale of a house, you know. About les arcs, in the, the, the great, great work of Charlotte Perrion, she worked during 20 years, in uh, more than 20 years, in uh, les arcs. And all the idea of les arcs come from the year 1930, everything. In 1930, she was at the beginning of the story of urbanism, and she has a very interesting reflection about urbanism and mountain. It was a politic project. She said, well, everybody in the town must have a contact each year with the nature. It's why she fined for vacation paid by the, the, the government. And uh, she developed a lot of ID in the year 1930. And in fact, in the art, she realized what she's seeing 20 years later. And um, when she arrived, the, the real estate uh, developer don't know urbanism and nothing. She changed uh, everything. She said, well, when you are in your home, you must have only the mountain and not another building. You don't have a car, for example. You arrive in car, yeah, but you put the car outside the station. The, the two ideas, the two concepts, no, no car, and you must have only the mountain when you are in your home, it changed all the urbanist plan. I think it's interesting to consider the social context of this project because, um, as Jacques has mentioned, it was a moment in the post-war history of Europe and France where, you know, the government was giving people holiday, paid holiday, crucially, but also building big infrastructure projects to, to bring leisure, to bring nature to working people in France as a sort of post-war contract. And... These spaces were designed to be egalitarian and accessible, which was a concept very important to Charlotte Perrier. Absolutely. I might just say, um, 
the idea of paid vacation was a product of the Popular Front and Charlotte at the very beginning proposed inexpensive vacation houses, including for the mountains in this period. And of course, in the 50s, as the economy began to recover, completely correct, there was a lot of interest in mass leisure, uh, support for mass leisure. And for me, there are really two goals that Charlotte had beyond the very personal uh, goals that Jacques just mentioned that she hoped everyone uh, could enjoy. And, and one was that everyone could have her love of the mountains. She starts her essay about being conscious of our responsibilities, declaring this love, and she really wants everyone, this phrase, the greatest number, which was used by Charlotte, was used by Candelos, Josic, and Woods, was used by a generation hoping, if you will, to democratize, I don't like those I-Z-E words, but to make available for many that which was not always available for many. So that's one goal. And the other, we might see it as almost ecological that she wanted to preserve the mountains. And when Jacques mentioned that you can't, when it's snowing, you don't know the buildings are there. This desire that by grouping, uh, having a dense habitation, but not towers. I think the original scheme for Arc 1600 actually was three high-rise buildings. And Charlotte rejects that for working with the terrain and the levels uh, so you can preserve the mountains. And also, as you've mentioned, the natural environment was centre you know, to this project. There's an amazing picture of Charlotte Perriand taken from behind where she's standing on the top of a mountain, just wearing some bull bearings, I think, as a necklace and not really anything else. But this sense of sublime and this sense of this brave, amazing woman engaging with you know, the alpine vista. I think she loved the mountains and wanted everyone to feel the essence of of the mountains. Um, So there was a sustainable, ecological edge to this project, which is very much before its time. Do you think that, um, Jacques, do you think that Charlotte Perrien really was a trailblazer in that way, coming before um, some of these trends that we're seeing now? You know, she published in 1935, uh, very interesting things. Uh, she take the example of the house in Norway. Uh, the house was the uh, 50th century. And she said, we must build a new building uh, in the mountain and put grass and terre, uh, earth, on the top of the, the, the construction for isolation. And all the, the first project in, in Les Arts, the architecture, She wanted to put grass on the top and uh, earth for the isolation. And we have in the archive research with uh, solar energy. And for example, the most interesting uh, building she do is uh, Versant Sud. You have 1,000 studios in the the mountain and you have grass on the top of uh, all the studios, you know. For Charlotte, the environment was uh, the center of his preoccupation. It's why she say, I don't want a, a ski resort with a lot of chalet, you know, like in Maribel, because after you have all the mountain is only construction. 
and sometimes you can ski between construction. She said, no, we must have a kind of uh, concentration, you know, to, uh, uh, to have no building and nothing, only the mountain when you are in your uh, studio. And Jacques, how has Les Arcs actually fared? What is it like now? And are these wonderful ideas and this sense of tactility and egalitarianism we've been talking about, are they still relevant? Have they endured? The problem is that a lot of uh, people in Les Arcs, they say, oh, I want a more, uh, I want a studio like in... Uh, like in the city, you know, when they change uh, a lot, a lot of things. And today it's very difficult to find a, a studio exactly like it was. It's why sometimes we are sad because a lot of people destroy. And after uh, one or two or three years after destroying the studio like it was, they say, oh, it's not very good like this. But it's too late. <laughs> it's too late. And they say, oh, my God. When I see on the market, the furniture are very expensive. We are very stupid. Yes, they are very stupid. There is a Japanese girl. She loves uh, Charlotte and she buys a studio and she come back exactly like at the original. And today, a lot of people want to rent the studio to see exactly like it was, you know. And uh, in Les Arcs, you have a around uh, 10,000 uh, studio made by Charlotte, but you can find perhaps 100 studio like it was, you know. What I want to say about prefabrication is that each year in eight months, uh, it was necessary to build 1,000 uh, studio. And it was very hard. It's why each building, Charlotte worked with a different architect. She has a great pressure on her. It's why she wants to prefabricate a maximum of pieces. But at the beginning, a lot of people don't like this. But at the end, uh, it was very successful. And uh, it's a very good example of the capacity of Charlotte in the prefabrication field. And finally, Mary, I wondered if you could give your insights into what you feel the legacy of Charlotte Perriand in the Alpine space has been. For me, incredibly relevant. And I think if you go to any architecture school today, the issue of ecology uh, is just all present. And I think the wonderful thing about Charlotte, as Jacques said, she rejected this idea of spreading out everywhere and by concentrated development, but concentrated in a way that respected the terrain, not high-rise towers. She was able to make a project that related to the environment, but also, I think, minimized, as we said, ecological damage. The other thing I would just say is the joy. There's something that I just so appreciate that's not just efficiency for efficiency's sake or minimizing cost for minimizing cost's sake, but somehow making a place that gives many the pleasures of a really comfortable, inspiring environment. For me, that was the lesson 
that there could be a kind of joyful modernism, a joyful functionalism. And I hope that future resorts will follow that. That was Jacques Barsac and Mary McLeod. Thank you both. It's interesting because I've always gone to the traditional ski resorts, but it's really tempting to look at these more modern contemporary ones. Have you been to any of the more Well, I have. In fact, I went on a little mini break to Flane, which was built around the same period, a little bit before Les Arcs, by Marcel Brewer, the Bauhaus Hungarian architect. It's very, very brutalist. And I think it's having a kind of renaissance because there are actually some wonderful hotels there full of tubular steel chairs designed by Marcel Brewer. He went on to design the Whitney in New York and UNESCO in Paris. He's known for his chairs, but then he's absolutely incredible architect too. But it's funny to consider that actually some of the modernist designs in the mountains were considered eyesores for so long. And they've been re-evaluated, a little bit like Perrien's Les Arcs. Kind of probably striking in that sort of grey against the white snow. I, I can see it has its own appeal as well. And Marcella, I mean, it's interesting to hear that Perrien was so connected with the sublime element of the mountains. And she wanted to preserve really the natural essence of the landscape rather than sort of dominate it. I can share her love to nature because... If it's up to me, it's all about the final destination. means a restaurant with a nice terrace, great food and great views of all the nature and all the snow. With no target like this, I don't take out my cross-country seas or my snow hiking sticks, actually. And it's interesting to think that actually this was a national strategy to try and encourage people to get out into the mountains and democratise leisure and democratise the the beauty of skiing which is quite an elite sport and still is I mean did it work <laughs> frankly <laughs> and 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 you see Perrien's furniture from Les Arcs now at auction for you know thousands and thousands so in a way I think she might have been disappointed to see despite the value of it um, you know those things didn't endure they didn't stay in their context Except I think if you look at countries like the Czech Republic, where they have mountains on their doorstep, and Norway, I think probably skiing is part of winter life and it's not necessarily an elite sport. So I think somewhere around the world there is still this uh, this capacity for uh, everyone to enjoy the mountains and skiing in winter. You say that with a very Canadian insight there. <laughs> Someone's probably hit the slopes quite young. You're absolutely right. People have labelled, you know, from our perspective in Britain, you don't get onto the Alps so easily. But if they're on your doorstep, there is that sense that you just jump in the car and go. So, well, actually in Switzerland, every baby starts to ski with, I don't know, when he's out of his kinderwagen. So you see small kiddies already on the snow with the helmet on. And so skiing is something like swimming in summertime in the lake. So for us in Switzerland, it's not at all an elite sport. It's just a question of is there snow or isn't there snow? And I'm so envious of them. Well, I'm sort of struggling down, half snow plowing down the slopes and these tiny little two-footers are skiing past me so elegantly with like perfect style. And I'm just like, oh, why can't that be me? And the fearlessness as well. I mean, 
they're, they're, they're closer to the ground, but <laughs> I think it gives you a, a gift. And I think it is also that sense that the mountains are there. You can jump yeah. in the car and go up. It doesn't have to be an investment in the same way that it might be if you come from afar. And so wonderful mm. to have that in your culture and accessible in so many ways. And it doesn't have to be a very chic hotel, though. It's preferable <laughs> for me. I quite like the apres ski, possibly more than the skiing moments, the shushing. It can be quite terrifying. <laughs> Next, we're meeting the company that keeps us looking stylish on the slopes. In the opening of the latest issue of Confect, we featured a sleek 1970s-style ski suit, a staple of the brand Fusalp. Fusalp is a mountain sportswear brand that's been operating since 1952 when two tailors in Annecy decided to apply their trade to ski wear. Since then, generations of ski champions have performed in Fusalp at international competitions, including the Goitschel sisters at the 1964 Olympic Games and Jean-Claude Killy at the 1968 Games in Grenoble. And at this year's Winter Olympics, Team GB's Alpine ski team will be dressed in the brand. In 2014, Fusalp was bought by siblings Sophie and Philippe Lacoste, who've revitalised this heritage brand with help from creative director Mathilde Lacoste. While they're sticking to Fusalp's traditions by keeping the focus on good-looking, high-performance mountain wear, there has been a big focus on collaboration too. Fusalp has teamed up with brands like Colette and Chloe to produce chic sportswear that can be worn up a mountain or in the city. On a recent trip to Paris, Confect Corner producer Holly Fisher caught up with the brand's co-president, Sophie Lacoste, to talk about skiing in style. Fusalp is just a fantastic brand that is really a part of our French history. And at the same time, it has deeply rooted in itself a very great modernity and a fantastic innovative capacity. And that's very interesting because Fusalp accompanies people in their everyday life with products that gives mobility, ease, comfort, and at the same time, elegance, line, silhouette, a kind of chic à la française that allows people to, to, feel, to feel good in these garments and to feel beautiful. And what was your relationship with the brand before you came on board? You know, my, my mother was uh, born in the Alps, in the French Alps. So my brother and I are very, very close to the, to the, the Alps culture. And Fusalp is part of this culture. It's a childhood memory. And it's always very, very uh, precious to be able to reconnect with these kinds of memories. And what we liked a lot about this brand was its uh, a very strong aesthetic identity, line, silhouette, elegance, uh, but connected with technicity. That's the important, that's the interesting part of it. It's always elegance linked to technologies, to technicities. And that really was a, a great attraction to us. And also its potential was, was incredible. It's a strong DNA that really allows us to, to project it into the 21st century with very contemporary values. But since you've come on board, you've been breathing some fresh air into the brand by doing some amazing collaborations with the likes of Chloe. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit about that collaboration. It's a beautiful collaboration that we like a lot because, in fact, we have our designs, our products with all the Chloe 
colors, uh, all the Chloe codes that are uh, linked together. And it's always very important when you, you make a collaboration. It's only our second collaboration because the first one was with Colette. We made that capsule collection and our, the second one is Chloe. So they're like five years in between because we didn't find any collaboration that would be interesting okay. enough uh, for us to invest ourselves, our times, our teams into it. And we felt that Chloe, we were born the same year, in fact, 1952. And uh, we have the same values, the same, we accompany the same woman, in fact. And so we felt we could really tell a story together. I feel like that collection really sort of pushes the boundaries of what ski wear can be and look like. And I wondered how hard it is to convince people to wear something that's maybe not completely traditional ski wear on the slopes. No, it's not that hard because people want to to get disruptive clothing. So I have one suit, which is red, that I like a lot. And it's very nice because when I wear it, I feel freedom of course freedom of movement but i also feel power you know i feel like i'm wonder woman walking with my ski shoes and uh, with all that y you feel really well uh, equipped yeah and uh, and uh, and sure and it's a very a feeling of power and it's very very interesting i mean if there's one place you want to feel powerful and in control it's when you're about to throw yourself down a mountain so <laughs> it's quite fitting and thinking about that about designing clothes that People, are, people might see you know, a flash second as it soars past you down a mountain. Do you have to think about what the colour of that whoosh is going to look like when you're designing ski wear? For sure, for sure. And the colors are very important. Our artistic director, Mathilde, who is my uh, sister-in-law, she's very, very powerful, <laughs> speaking about power. And she's very strong at colors. She really finds the right reds, the right whites, which is not that easy. White on snow is just beautiful. And it's very important to have clear colors. And it's, uh, it's something that we work a lot on. Well, we've got the Winter Olympics coming up, and I saw that you're doing Team GV's Alpine where and I wondered how that collaboration works because for them the, their clothes are their equipment it's not a, it's well it's a bit of a fashion statement but first and foremost it's it's what's going to help them win a medal potentially and so how does that collaboration work do they try things on and give you feedback do they wear the clothes and say I need to breathe a bit more or I need to move a bit better how does that work no, they're very happy with the clothing that we gave them. You know, historically, Fusalp was the creator of the first racing suit uh, in the 60s with the French team. Uh, and it really um, was created to help the French ski team to perform. So we, we really here to, to help the, the, the performance. And uh, so we work very specifically on these products to help them with the, with the highest uh, standard of technicity to give them the, the right uh, suit that will bring them uh, with the, the last uh, sense of seconds they need to, to, to win. So it's very, very important and we're here to support it. What are the kind of main focuses in innovation in ski wear at the moment? We work a lot on as always, on warmth. For us, the, the, the main objective is to give warm with a, a tight product. So how can you have a tight jacket that really makes beauty of your silhouette, but with great warmth? Uh, and it's very w what we focus on. It's more about architecture 
of the garment than about really technology of the material. Of course, we have the technology of the material, but we need to work more on the architecture to be able to, to have the right uh, hair going through the, the, the clothing and so you can have the great warmth. That's the most important. But what we work a lot also is on the impact and on the durability of our garments so uh, that they will last a very long time and the quality standards are very, very high. And I wondered um, where you like to ski and also this season, which pieces from the Fossalp collection you'll be wearing on the slopes? Uh, I, I ski in Megève most of the time uh, because I really love that small village and very authentic. And uh, this year, I will be wearing a suit uh, that is from our heritage collection, which is blue, red and white. And, um, and I find it very interesting. I love skiing in suits. And uh, so I will try. But I have, of course, several ones from the other, other years that I will continue to wear. That was Sophie Lacoste, co-president of FUSAP. Marcella, I'm coming to you first on this one. As Confex style director, you must have a favourite brand of ski wear or mountain wear. Actually, I don't have, because I think everybody has a lot of things and mixing and matching it together. And uh, I think it's actually a composition of, let's say, Bogner, Frauenschuh, Cajus, Montclair or Fusalp, but you never will have like a one full look. But let me say what is my absolute dream, and I can't find it nowhere, it's ski suits or ski sport dressing like Peter Knopp, the fashion photographer who is showing now at the gallery in the Upper Engadine, is showing in his pictures. Those are colors, dresses that I would immediately start skiing all day long. They are so beautiful, but you can't find there nowhere in the world, I think. I completely agree. And the pictures of Peter Knapp, which are also featured in this issue of Confect for Winter, it's just, they're so elegant. The salopettes with knitwear underneath, you know, the sense of blue sky and white snow, but very elegant, easy ski wear. It's kind of pre the helmets and all of that stuff are very good for safety. But it was a little bit before that when you had the wind in your hair, eyewear, <laughs> and it just had that colour, as you say. I love going to the Kulm Hotel in uh, Summerets and looking at all their vintage photographs of people on the ski slopes and apres ski and on the skating rink. And they're all in beautiful woolens, like beautiful woolen sweaters and these gorgeous boots, like, you know, just this sort of different age, but it was actually like real clothes that they would wear during winter other than sometimes this garish neon colours that we see on the slopes these days. And quite a lot of rustle. I mean I I, I think it's great to have you know this you know waterproofing and, and, and certainly windproofing on the slopes especially if you have bad weather but then you know this idea that you're like a Michelin man you know going around and that's why the Fusalp svelte suit is so mm. elegant and just very easy to wear. I really like a Swiss brand mover that do Swiss wool and then a very light shell. So you don't feel weighed down by it and you just get that sense of mobility. You have those moments of real sublime kind of being part of nature up on the slopes so without feeling kind of overburdened by all your kit. <laughs> <laughs> 
Coming up, we head to a town in the Dolomites to find out about some of its colourful former residents. And we reflect on how waking up in snow-capped mountains makes us feel. But first, we're in Reykjavik, where we meet Icelandic pianist and composer Idis Evanson at Greenhouse Studios, the space where the musician finished recording her debut album, Bilo, released early this year. Evanson's fresh approach to classical composition has drawn comparisons with other so-called post-classical composers, including Niels Fram and Olafur Arnolds with simple but haunting melodies that feel somewhat cinematic. Though a keen musician all her life, Everson spent her early 20s travelling the world as a model, only settling back in the Icelandic capital when the pandemic struck in early 2020. Here she tells us of her writing process, the story behind some of the key tracks on the album, and where her musical style is heading next. I grew up in a small town in the north called Blöndos. It's, um, it's a town with a rough population of 800 people. And Valgeir, who also owns the studio, is from this very same town. My family has been just, you know, they love music and all these different genres. So, you know, I always remember music being in the house growing up, that being jazz or classical or Led Zeppelin or Pink Floyd or anything. My older brother, he's in a, a death metal band, uh, multiple death metal bands. So we're all just great lovers of music. And then throughout my travels, I'd just been putting all of my experiences emotionally into music. The way I compose is that it's usually I start with improvisation. So there's, you know, some sort of landscapes or some sort of inspiration that I take. I am hugely inspired by the surroundings of where I'm from up north. So sort of very isolated place and heavy and harsh weather conditions and beautiful sweeping mountains and all these colours and textures. The first um, sort of continuous story was um, a piece called Wandering One and Two on the album. Um, I initially composed the first part when I was living in Australia I was there for a couple of months and I just found the recording is from what the first part from 2016 and it's really interesting to hear how the track developed as I was going from a different city and a new experience with this sort of same core essence of the emotion of wandering, you know, no specific destination in mind but just being on the road and taking everything in as you're going. I was, I think I just finished a very tense casting in New York and I was sort of on my way to another casting, was sort of, you know, out and about in the city and it was very, very tense. I think it was also summer, so like extremely hot. So I was feeling quite confused. And then all of a sudden this rhythmical point, the time signature of, of circulation just came to me and I just had my little book with me and just wrote down the time signature. And as soon as I got home, I just written out this piece and I just felt, okay, this just has to be a string piece and to relate to the hectic emotion of living in New York City and just going to the train and popping up somewhere else. And, and that's also what I wanted to 
sort of try to capture with that piece. It's just sort of, it's meant to make you feel a bit thrown off. I really want to broaden my sort of spectrum of composing. Um, at the moment, I'm a bit like old-fashioned in the way of how I write music. So I only got my very first computer a year ago. So just when COVID was starting and I'd never owned a computer before and was just always writing everything down on a piece of paper. So being able to use all the programs and like teaching myself like logic and everything for the first time was like, wow, this is a whole different world. So I'd love to definitely experiment with the electronical side and compose with different instruments as well, um, like woodwinds, for example, maybe work with some poetry. But I do feel actually with writing on a uh, on piece of paper sort of has helped me so much to actually have that overview that it's kind of like a meditative process for me, just writing down one note at a time and sort of figuring out how the, the full harmony is. The piano that I started composing on, it's the piano that is from my great-grandmother's. It's an upright piano, it's what, 120 years old? And it's actually built up like a grand piano, so it has, you know, it's a three-stringed upright piano, so it has much more depth than usually. It's been in my parents' place for a few years now. Nobody's been performing on it. So I really want to redo that piano, and hopefully when I have my studio set up here in Iceland to be able to have that sort of really, really, really deep texture of the piano. It's beautiful. It knows me so well, better than myself. That was Icelandic pianist Idis Evansson. And to read the interview in print, the latest issue of Confect magazine is out now. You're listening to Confect Corner, and I'm Sophie Grove. To South Tyrol in Italy next. Sitting high up in the Dolomites, hugging the Austrian border, and with majority German and minority Latin language speakers, it's probably the country's least Italian region, culturally speaking. Some 50 kilometres south of the famous Brenner Pass, which was, until recent times, one of the only routes through the Alps to Italy that remained open during the winter, is the small but historically important city of Brixen, or Bresonone in Italian. Known for its Baroque cathedral and being the seat of the ancient bishopric of Brixen, its position on this important north-south trade and cultural passage led to many esteemed visitors over the centuries, including a young Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, who lived in the medieval old town from 1769 to 1773. Before that, however, Brixen hosted an even more unusual guest... David Pleasant went along to the immensely atmospheric Hotel Elephant and spoke to the owner, Michael Falk. They began by discussing this most storied establishment's name and the exotic guest it came from. Yeah, it's a long time ago. The, the hotel started around 1490. And in 1490, it was called on the high fields in English, zum Hohenfeld. And then in 1551, the King Johan of Portugal gave to his nephew, the Archduke Maximilian of Austria, an elephant as a wedding present. And Maximilian had to go to Spain to catch up his present. And on the way back, he decided to pass the Alps in wintertime 
it was the right period to pass the Alps <laughs> because there was a lot of snow, there was, it was cold. And so they were looking for a place where they could rest, where they found a decent kitchen, where they found a place for this elephant. And so they found us. And you imagine to see an elephant in that period, 1551, was something extraordinary. And uh, after two weeks, they left. They went then to Vienna. And then the owner of that period, Andrew Pesch, said, now I'm going to call it Elephant. That was current owner of the Hotel Elephant in Brixen there, Michael Falk, telling us a little bit of his family hotel's long and illustrious history. Remarkably, Michael is the eighth generation of the Heisfalk family to be proprietor. And walking around the hotel's intimate wooden-clad, low-ceilinged halls and adjoining nooks and side rooms, every bit of the 470-year history since that elephant stayed one winter can be felt. The elephant is not only a hotel, it's also a kind of museum because all these generations, they collected pieces of art, uh, furniture, and we have also some, let's say, different types of architecture inside because every one of these generations did something. Like the Stube you ate inside, it's from 1882. The Stube, which is a largely wood-panelled room, often with an iron or ceramic stove in one corner, is a key component of any traditional Tyrolean home or inn. At the Hotel Elephant, the centuries-old Stube is used to house the acclaimed restaurant. Sitting by the ornate porcelain stove, looking through the antique glass-panelled windows onto the rooftops of Brixen is a perfect place to enjoy a glass of wine, for which South Tyrol is also famed. Yeah, some parts, they remained really like that because the Stube from 1882, it was this wood panelling carved and then we decided to do a new Stube. The next one was made in 1971 and now we got the Michelin star restaurant, what we did in the kind of same way but in a modern style in 2017. In fact, 40 years ago, in 1971, the Hotel Elephant hosted travel writer Joseph Vexberg, who was writing for the New York Times. Vexberg spoke glowingly of both Brixen and its most venerable inn. He even commented on that Stube, saying, A new, completely wood-panelled dining room has just been installed, describing that the wood is still bright and then perhaps joking that the wood will be dark and lovely by the year 2029. Fortunately for today's visitors, the wood in the Hotel Elephant's Stube has mellowed considerably quicker than Joseph Vexberg predicted in his article. Another feature of the hotel 40 years ago was the famous Elephanten Platter, served by its chefs. Vexberg describes this as an enormous arrangement prepared for at least four persons. Consisting of boiled beef, smoked pork, roast veal, ham, grilled liver, steak, pork chops, sweetbreads, beef tongue and Wiener schnitzel, the elephant platter was not for the faint-hearted or vegetarian diner. So is this meat feast still on the menu today? 
we stopped it around 10 years ago because the eating habits, they changed completely. This was a mountain of meat. And in that period, we had still our agriculture, our farm, we had our porches, we had our... And so if somebody left something at the restaurant, you brought it directly to the animals. And in this period, to do like a waste, it's not, not right. But it was great. If you see the pictures still, what we have, this platter with this mountain of meat on the top, we had, um, there was a chicken with a kiwi on it. So it <laughs> the food offering at the Hotel Elephant might have changed with the times, but thankfully much else has been retained not least the comfort and welcome that comes with the knowledge of the generation's old management being on call. This longevity makes the place exceptional even by local standards. We try to transmit our love of this property and you feel it also with our, our employees. Employees, they love to work inside, they love to transmit this history and I have to say we are nearly 365 days inside this property to work. We are not only down in the office doing accounting, we are really serving people. So we try to transmit something special, let's say. For Confect Corner in Brixen, South Tyrol, I'm David Pleasant. And now for a final thought, a bit of cold comfort. Writer Gabrielle Prodel relishes the pristine early morning snowscape and builds a collection of sensory memories to sustain him in the height of summer. In the children's book Frederick, while all the other mice are storing up food, Frederick the mouse collects words and colours so that he will be able to recall summer in the depth of winter. I never got the premise of Leo Leone's tale. The summer is so intense that everyone knows what it feels like. Everyone knows the smell of dry hay, of chlorine in the outdoor pool, of greasy french fries. But how does Frederick recall the smell of snow? What does fog taste? Winter is more tender, more nuanced. I want to collect supplies for the scorching summer. So instead of sitting on a hot stone like Frederick the mouse, I go for a walk in the snow. First thing in the morning, I put on a knitted woolen sweater and sturdy shoes so I don't slip on the ice. It's minus six degrees. The fog hangs here in the valley. My goal is a summit nearby, just above the clouds. I could be the first to see the sun today. When it has snowed all night, I like to get up early to take a walk on the countryside. In the morning, I can feel the fresh snow before the cars turn into mud. I can hear the trees creak under the weight of snow until it melts. I can taste the winter air before it thaws. In the morning, the winter is still as the night left it. The morning is the most honest. I have decided on a flat forest path that leads past wind turbines that churns the icy fog with their massive rotors. In the snow I recognize the trail of a deer, which seems to stop in an abyss. Did the animal climb into the ravine? Did it jump? I want to follow the trail, but soon come across a snowdrift that I cannot cross. The wind has scattered the fresh snow along the way, and grooves have formed. Six pine cones have fallen on the ground and formed them almost perfect circle. When I walk, I try not to think about anything, but I never succeed. I think of the jackdaws sitting in the trees. Are they cold? 
or the deer that left the trail? Did he sink into the snow and suffocate? I also think about whether someone has already been to the summit today. Anyone who left before me? Think about anything. You should learn how to feel your breath, but my breath freezes. Thence steam wafts around my head. My thoughts are heavy. What are my items on the agenda today? Who do I have to call when I get back? What should I cook tonight? Who do I want to be? The further I climb, the clearer the cold becomes. The fog is dry and fine. The sun has almost conquered it. The forest is getting thin and I can already see the ridge that I want to walk along. I see how the wind pulls over the ridge. The fresh snow is smooth like a stretched cloth. I look forward to being alone on the summit. I like being able to look back at the way I've come. I like to see the little houses and cars and streams that flow tender and blue like veins. At the top of a mountain, I feel very small but also big because I'm the highest. Only a ridge separates me from the summit. I can already see the cross that marks it. I haven't met anyone so far. Most are probably still asleep. I love the feeling of walking while everyone else sleeps. The feeling of having already done something just as others getting out of bed. It's like I'm being one step ahead of the world. As though everyone else is following the tracks I've made in the fresh snow. The last part of my walk is the ascent to the summit cross. I look forward to putting my check hand over a rock up there and sitting down in the sun for a few minutes. There are still a few meters to go before I hear voices from above. Two walkers have already climbed from the other side of the mountain. I'm a little annoyed. If only I had got up earlier. We greet each other and one of them says, We didn't think we'd meet someone up this time. I didn't expect to either, I say. I hope he can't hear my displeasure. How ridiculous of me. Why is my mood clouding just because someone else is here first? Isn't this the nice thing about walking, that it isn't a competition? Or maybe it is. Perhaps the best walker should be the one who discovers the most banal things along the way. Frederick the Mouse would be proud of me, I guess. I take a handful of snow and drop my face in it so that I can memorize the smell for the warm month to come. That was Gabriel Prodel reading us his piece from the latest issue of Confect magazine. It's almost the end of the episode, but before we go, I wanted to ask you both about what you're looking forward to in the year ahead. Gillian, what's on your radar? I mean, simple things, getting together with friends, dinner parties, conversations over dinner parties, uh, more ambitious things. Uh, again, I suppose a little obvious, but uh, travel, a simple travel, train travel maybe, just getting out there and reporting and covering interesting stories and not being hindered by our pandemic world and just being able to discover again afresh. Martella, I know you've travelled a lot this year. What have you got your eye on for 2022? Yeah, first of all, the snow in the mountains. <laughs> I'd like to profit as much as I can before travelling again for all the fashion weeks, which will be hopefully like in last fall in reality and not digital. And you, Sophie, what are you sort of looking forward to in the year ahead? 
I'd like to go to um, Weissensee in, in Austria for some ice skating, high altitude ice skating. I feel like I want to glide and take in some of this kind of white, snowy wilderness we've been talking about. <laughs> we just need to have a moment, actually, that sense of the wild, and then we can get back into our quite taxing schedule of fashion weeks and wonderful adventures for the magazine, but we need some pause for thought first. The exhilaration of skating, how wonderful, Sophie. Well, that's all we have time for. Thank you, Gillian Tobias and Marcella Palak for keeping me company again. And thanks to you, the listener, as well, for keeping us company during our first year of Conflict Corner. We look forward to many more stories and conversations in 2022. Our winter issue of Confect is out now. Get your copy delivered to your door by subscribing at confectmagazine.com. Confect Corner is produced by Holly Fisher, Carlotta Ribello and Paige Reynolds. We'll be back next month with more, but until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.